You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is the WFHB Local News. And I'm Sarah Davis, reporting for Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News Director Cade Young continues his conversation with Dr. Jennifer Drobak, Professor of Law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University, regarding the Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Cutting the Cost of Gas, Part 4 on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment hosted and produced by Richard Fish. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. Before approving the consent agenda at their Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting on June 21st, Board Member Jim Sims asked Director of Utilities Vic Kelson to explain why certain contracts were set with not-to-exceed prices instead of having set values. Kelson explained that often the jobs can require more or less work, and having the amount set as not-to-exceed gives them more flexibility. Well, so so practically, if you, um, uh, if you look at this first one, uh, we're taking the original scope of work and taking one lift station that was going to be worked on out of the contract and add a different uh, lift station to that contract. This sort of thing can happen when you actually get into the field and begin the work. You can discover that maybe something that you thought was going to require more work requires less or something required didn't require work at all requires requires some work. And it's, it's, uh, it's less effort to do uh, to to amend the contract to do a change order, which changes the not to exceed amount, uh, but it's um, it's more straightforward than going through the entire process again. So as long as the controller approves of it and the legal department approves of it, it's a more effective way to execute the contracts. We get the work done more quickly and efficiently. The board also voted to approve an agreement with Overlook on forty six for increased contribution to the utilities at a development which decided to add more units to their design. Utilities engineer Phil Peden presented the contract. The previous approved MOU with the developer to gain uh, capacity within our sewer system, and we're, we're proceeding with that, but, but as we were doing that, they, they have changed some of their design, and so they, they looked at, I think, some of the economics of whether they wanted one bedrooms with a den or two bedrooms, and the two bedrooms looked better uh, for, from their standpoint, so they made a change. And so they didn't increase units, but they increased bedrooms per unit, which changes the, the flow capacity to the sewer, and therefore we needed to update the MOU so that we could uh, remove that capacity out of the, uh, with the INI and the Clearwater Reduction Program to offset their flow. So we've, we've updated the MOU, and it, I, I believe the total Total amount is an increase in $28,701. I would ask for the board's approval. Director of Planning and Transportation Scott Robinson shared that when the change was made, he informed the city of Bloomington Utilities. This change didn't trigger any site planning issues, but I did alert CBU because I was aware of the 
prior agreement, um, making sure that they were within those confines. And so thankfully, uh, CBU reviewed that and amended the contract to, to accommodate for those changes. So I just wanted to point that out. Thanks. The board approved the contract with Overlook on 46. The next board meeting will be held on July 5th. On June 21st at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, Director of Public Works, Adam Wasson, introduced a new board member, Jennifer Lloyd. By the way, we have a new board member, Jennifer Lloyd. So thank you, Jennifer, for uh, agreeing to serve on the Board of Public Works. Um, and we will just um, keep the titles. So you'll remain president, Kyla. Um, Jennifer will just fill in as vice president for the rest of this term. Elizabeth will serve as secretary for the rest of the year. And uh, yeah, so welcome aboard, Jennifer. Board President Kayla Cox-Deckard introduced the resolution to remove the structure at 2607 North Walnut Street. Housing and Neighborhood Development, Neighborhood Compliance Officer Mike Arnold shared the history of the staff's involvement with the property. This is a, a property we did order to seal uh, on June 10th of 2021. Um, we, we requested that uh, all the openings that were uh, broken windows or open doors be sealed on this structure. On uh, July 28th, we sent a past deadline letter because we had not gotten compliance. On August 16th, we had finally did get some compliance on, on the order. Um, and then you can see on October 1st, December 14th, and January 6th, when we did drive-bys, the uh, property was out of compliance again. So we sent order uh, letters requesting compliance with the order. Uh, January 25th, we sent a request to access the property so that we could uh, assess what it would, would take to actually get the structure sealed. Um, again, on February 15th, we sent another out of compliance letter. On um, March 24th, we sent the letter to the agent via email to try to get contact with the owner. And on March 29th, we received a letter signed from the owner stating that we could access the property to evaluate what we would need to do in order to steal the structure. On April 27th, we discussed with the agent the possible removal of the, of the structure to see if they would discuss that with the owner. Um, by June 2nd, we had not received any confirmation um, one way or the other, so we sent an order to remove on the structure. Um, and the reason we did an order to remove was because as a public nuisance, we're consistently having to go out and evaluate the property and make sure it's in compliance. And at this time, uh, we would request that the board uphold the order to remove the structure so that we, so it's no longer um, a nuisance. The property owner was unable to attend in person and was represented by attorney Vince Taylor, who spoke in favor of the order to remove the structure. Taylor said that if the building is torn down, his client would lose about $1 million, but understands that it is necessary. My name is Vince Taylor. I'm an attorney in Bloomington. Um, uh, actually, I have my offices on the north side of town, so I'm familiar with this property because I drive by it all the time. Um, there is a, there's an old Holiday Inn on North State Road 37 Business, which is the extension of Walnut Street. Um, and my client, Prime Power, it's a corporation owned by a Chinese woman named um, Chao Zhao, uh, who is now in China, and hopefully she's watching on Zoom. Um, Mr. Wheeler was kind enough to get give me the codes to get her here, so hopefully she's watching this. Um, but anyway, so this was part of that, but as you know, there's a place called the Cascades Inn now, so a part of that area was redone as a motel. 
this branch had been sold to somebody else, um, and it was in horrible shape. And uh, my client, I wasn't her attorney then, uh, but my client um, purchased it. She had a, a woman named Ivy Hasia, who was a realtor in town, who helped determine that and, and, and helped her with the purchase. She, in fact, was a graduate student here at Indiana University, and that's her connection to Bloomington. Um, and that's why she got involved in this with her father. Um, but anyway, they bought a horrible piece of property. Uh, it was owned by a gentleman that had held, had a number of run-ins with Han before. Um, I, I, I wish I would have known her then so I could have stopped her from buying this property, but I didn't. As soon as they bought the property, they tried to remove the tenants, and, and most of them they got out. One, they couldn't, so there was a long fight, and then there was COVID, so they weren't able to get into the property to to repair it because they had to remove everybody. They had plumbing that had to be, re, be redone in the parking lot. Um, so that's a separate matter. Uh, but I have um, uh, our position at this point, after having talked with Alexa, this is Alexa Knighty who's here with me. She does management work for the property. And a lot of emails with Chow, um, who's in China, as I said before. Um, we do not oppose what the city wants done. I mean, if this thing is ever going to be I mean, I mean, this. She's scared half to death. She's she's going to lose, well, at least a million dollars um, as a result of this purchase. But she is willing to do whatever is necessary to first of all secure it, because that's part of the problem. People will break into these units, and so of course it, it is a public nuisance. The neighbors don't want the homeless, and who knows, not just homeless, anybody who wants to break in a unit to do whatever. Taylor explained that the property owner wants to demolish the building that it, but is unable to find a contractor on such short notice and is looking to add a fence until then. Property owner Miss Shao talked over Zoom confirming that she wants to remove the structure. Uh, yeah, it's my intention to remove this structure, but uh, I need time to find a contractor to do this. Uh, and as Alexa says, there is no one can do this before the fall, as we know. So if, if you have a recommendation, that would be the best. City legal Chris Wheeler commented what the city staff's preference would be in regards to moving the structure. Vince and I did talk earlier today, and everything that he's stating is accurate to what we uh, talked about in regards to what the city at least would want to see as far as good faith and substantial steps taken to uh, have the property owner be responsible for the issues that are on her property. Uh, and that would include the type of security measures that we're seeing here espoused in the plan that's been presented, as well as then taking the steps to find an appropriate contractor. Uh, however, um, I would like to ask, though, for this board still to uphold the order that was issued. Uh, we will still look for that 31st of July deadline. But if we see substantial steps actually being taken in good faith towards getting the, this issue resolved, uh, we would come back and ask this board for an extension of that deadline to allow the property owner to get this taken care of. The board unanimously voted to approve the resolution to uphold the order to remove the structure. The next Board of Public Works meeting will be held on July 5th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news, an announcement from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. 
Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. here on WFHB. The program is available online at WFHB.org or wherever you get your podcasts. At the Mississippi State Penitentiary, also known as Parchman, a former deputy warden pleaded guilty to violating an inmate's civil rights in August 2016. Deputy Warden Melvin Hilson, age 49, was charged with violating the inmate's civil rights by repeatedly striking him and knocking him to the ground, resulting in the inmate suffering a ruptured eardrum, abrasions to his ear and neck, and prolonged headaches. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark for the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and U.S. Attorney Clay Joyner of the Northern District of Mississippi made this announcement. This defendant is being held accountable for violating his duty as a corrections officer by unlawfully assaulting an inmate under his custody. This former Parchman Deputy Warden caused severe injury to the victim and his actions violated the trust that we place in corrections officials to lawfully carry out their duties. The Civil Rights Division will continue to hold law enforcement officials accountable when they use force without basis and violate people's civil rights inside our jails and prisons. According to court documents and statements made during the hearing, Hilson was working as a member of Parchman's K-9 unit at the time of the assault. JT was in a caged area where he was waiting to be seen by a medical provider. Hilson approached JT and struck him with a closed fist several times, knowing that there was no reason to use force and that JT did not pose any threat to himself or others. During the assault, Hilson knocked JT to the ground, picked him up, and then struck him and knocked him to the ground again. According to prosecutors, JT did not attempt to fight back or defend himself. A federal grand jury indicted Hilson in June 2021 on three separate counts, including writing a false report to conceal the assault and lying to Mississippi Department of Corrections investigators about the assault. The obstruction charges will be dismissed at the conclusion of sentencing. Hilson is scheduled to be sentenced on September 1st, 2022. In a few weeks, tens of thousands of people in Missouri prisons will stop receiving letters and photos in the mail. Like other states, Missouri will soon prohibit inmates in prison statewide from receiving most physical mail. Instead, the state will pay a private Texas-based company to scan inmates' mail and send them digital copies. State corrections officials say the move is necessary to stem the flow of drugs and other contraband into prisons, but criminal justice reform advocates warn it could violate inmates' privacy and further isolate them from their families. Beginning July 1st, anyone who wishes to send personal mail to an inmate in Missouri must mail it to a centralized processing facility in Tampa owned by Securus Technologies, where workers will make a digital copy. Inmates will be able to view their mail on electronic tablets, which they receive at no cost from the company when they first enter prison. Inmates who don't have access to a tablet will receive free paper photocopies of their personal mail. Missouri prisons will continue to accept certain types of postal mail, including legal correspondence from attorneys, visitation applications, and mail from state agencies. New Mexico, Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania also have banned personal mail in prisons, citing concerns over drug smuggling. However, an investigation from the Texas Tribune and the Marshall Project last year found the flow of contraband into Texas prisons remained largely unchanged despite statewide mail restrictions. 
David Price, 58, an inmate serving a life sentence in the state of Alabama, was found unresponsive in his cell on Tuesday. After correctional staff rushed Price to the medical healthcare unit at Bibb Correctional Facility, medical staff attempted life-saving measures but were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced deceased. The precise cause of Price's death is unknown, pending the results of a full autopsy, with the ADOC Law Enforcement Services Division investigating the incident, according to ADOC. Last week, another inmate serving a life sentence was found unresponsive in an Alabama correctional facility. William Terry, 46, was serving a life sentence in Easterling Correctional Facility. Terry's death is also under investigation. Price is the third death in Bibb Correctional Facility in the last two months. Both Price and Terry were denied parole last year, according to records from the Alabama Department of Pardons and Paroles, with each man's next parole hearing having been scheduled for 2026. U.S. Department of Justice, in their ongoing lawsuit filed against the state of Alabama, alleged that ADOC is unable to control the flow of contraband and drugs in Alabama prisons, with the result being a higher amount of overdose deaths. The report also called into question ADOC's accuracy in reporting drug overdose deaths, with some being mistakenly designated deaths by natural causes. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young continues his conversation with Dr. Jennifer Droback, professor of law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law here at Indiana University, about the Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We turn now to part two of that interview. Now, you touched on some history uh, a plenty, and but I wanted to see if you could walk me through sort of a brief constitutional timeline of abortion law in the U.S. going back to the nation's founding up until the, the point we're in now. It's pretty much laid out accurately in Roe versus Wade, which has now been overturned and which the current decision says Roe got wrong. And so... The current decision talks about how right before uh, the passage of Roe, a lot of states made abortion illegal. And that's true. Um, But at the founding of this nation, the Roe decision that went through at the founding of this nation, where these jurists typically like to hang out, is that abortion up until the time of what's called quickening was legal. And what is quickening? Quickening in the vernacular is basically when the baby starts to move. And so until the baby can move, until you know you're actually pregnant, it was, oh, it was, it was acceptable. It was still legal to have an abortion. And in fact, Benjamin Franklin wrote about it on how to do it with what herbs to use in one of his publications. And so it was, acknowledged that that was an acceptable choice under common law. Now, what happened was, is that you started getting a restriction of this as women started to vote and as women started to come into their own power. And what happened was, in about 1962, the birth control pill was invented. That changed women's lives. 
And what happened was people who were in power, and unfortunately it was typically men, um, were threatened by this because women could now control their own reproduction. And so they started, you know, back in the 50s and then in the 60s, started outlawing abortion. So by the end of that period, you, you saw much more restrictive abortion laws. And those had started, I must say, much before then. But um, sometimes abortion was regulated because it was thought to be too risky and they didn't trust the medical uh, field. But as abortion became safer and safer, that restriction was no longer justified. And so you see this evolution that produced what the court was relying on, which was this, what they called a, a national sense that this was wrong. That's new history because we didn't start that way. And what we do know now is, is that it's much safer to have an abortion than it is to have a high-risk pregnancy or than it is, for example, to have a child that's um, not cared for properly. Uh, because that's a huge cost uh, to not only the child and the family, but also to the rest of society. That's a tragedy. Most people who become pregnant um, do not put their children up for adoption, if they, even if it was an unwanted pregnancy. They try and handle it because there is this notion that you have to take care of your children. And of course you do. I really appreciate you um, diving into some of that history for me and kind of walking me through little bit of a timeline. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, this is a hypothetical here. So the Supreme Court has nine justices right now, three of which were appointed by the previous president. So hypothetically speaking, can President Biden appoint more Supreme Court justices? Yes, he can, even if there's not an empty seat. And, it's, and people would call that packing the court. But they'd have to get through confirmation in the Senate, and there's some question as to whether that could occur. But there is no rule that says that the Supreme Court is limited to nine justices. And in fact, it might alleviate the burden on them if there were more justices. But I doubt Biden's going to do that. I see. I see. Well, I appreciate you answering that. Now, lastly, back to the July 6th special session if Indiana does restrict or outright ban abortion, how would the state house enact such restrictions and what would be a possible recourse, if any, to challenge such legislation? Yeah, they could, they just do it by passing a law. I mean, that's what the, that's what the legislature does. They pass laws and, you know, the legislature has said they will invite commentary. And so people who are, they shouldn't give up. They should they should exercise their free speech and and I'm going to try and go to a rally on the sixth at the state house. But I encourage everyone to call their representatives and and make your opinion known because you know that anti-choice people will be doing that. And yes, you're correct that this could be challenged. That this could be challenged and it, it could be challenged. There's no point in challenging it right now under. The 14th Amendment substantive due process, liberty, privacy, because the court's going to rule the same way. They won't even take it up on certiorari or, you know, they, they won't even consider it because they just decided this issue. What I would do is I would call it forced labor, literally 
forced labor, that you are forcing my body to work. That's a violation of the 13th Amendment that that prohibits slavery. Well, these are all the questions I have prepared for you, Dr. Drobak, but I want to give you the last word, give you the floor here. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we part ways? Yes. This is not just about abortion. This is about liberty and how we define liberty in the future. So everybody should be paying attention because it's not just the abortion rights of some fertile women. It is the liberty rights of all Americans. And we have to stand up for our democracy and for our freedom. Get active, everybody. Well, Dr. Jennifer Drobak, professor of law at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University. Thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Kate. Up next, Cutting the Cost of Gas, Part 4 on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Want to pay less for gas? Here's the fourth part of our series on how you can spend maybe a dollar a gallon less than the price on the pump by increasing your gas mileage. We've established that you need to keep track of your mileage all the time, keep your gas tank full, and keep your car in good shape. This time, keep away from other cars. How you drive affects your mileage and the money you spend on gasoline more than anything else. The most important thing is to keep as much space as you can around your car. This simple rule has enormous benefits. You get where you're going faster, you burn less gas getting there, and you're much more likely to arrive safely. The more space there is between you and the car in front, the better you'll be able to anticipate any need to speed up or slow down. Out on the highway, using your cruise control is a wonderful thing when it's safe to do so. But if you find yourself running right alongside another car, in formation as it were, you're in a very dangerous situation. Drop back or go on ahead. Some drivers try to get right behind a big truck so it'll suck them along and increase their mileage. For that to work, you have to be within inches of the truck or the turbulence will cut your mileage. So it's fantastically dangerous and equally stupid. The truck driver can't see you back there and you can't see what's in front of the truck. If you see some idiot doing this, put a whole lot of space between your car and his quickly. Zipping in and out of traffic doesn't save near enough time to be worth the extra gas. And tailgating is just plain stupid, all the time, everywhere. It's dangerous for both cars. If somebody tailgates you, slow down 
and increase the space between you and the car in front. If the idiot wants to pass, help! You're safer with that driver in front of you. So drive spaced out and pay attention. If every car on the road was spaced out from the others, traffic could move faster and safer, and every car would burn less gas. You can get the benefits right now if you do it, even when others don't. You may be astonished at how much money you save, but that's not all. The most expensive gasoline you'll ever buy is the gas that's in your tank when you have an accident you could have avoided. That gas could cost you $1,000 a gallon, or it could cost somebody's life, the price of which is infinite. Next time, we'll look at the mileage game, how you can take advantage of opportunities to save gas as you drive along. It's fun, and you get paid for it. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com 